Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of the Bob Johnston Podcast, where we get expert knowledge that we all can use now from leaders across business, sports, entertainment, and culture. This episode is with Jarrett Barrios. He is CEO of the Red Cross in Los Angeles. And whether you live in LA or not, there are gems of wisdom in here for you. Jarrett is a longtime leader in the quote-unquote disaster space, and we'll dig into what exactly that means. Having been CEO of the Red Cross in Massachusetts during the Boston Marathon bombing, and in fact, he ran the marathon that year and was six blocks from the finish line when the bomb went off. We'll discuss his practical tactics and strategies around managing life in these uncertain times, keeping focus, as well as the lessons that for-profit companies can employ as it relates to preparedness in both green sky and gray sky scenarios, and we'll kind of dive into that as well. Before heading up the Red Cross in Los Angeles and Massachusetts, Jarrett served as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives and the Massachusetts Senate, and was the first Latino and first openly gay man elected to the Massachusetts Senate. He subsequently served as a president of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation, and he's the son of a Cuban-American carpenter and a Cuban-American social worker in Tampa, Florida. Jarrett moved to Cambridge at the age of 17 to study at Harvard. After graduating with high honors and working for the Boston City Council, he obtained his law degree with honors from Georgetown. And uh, the Eisenhower Fellowship selected him as an Eisenhower Fellow in 2009. So he's got quite the background. It was a wonderful chat and, in fact, quite uplifting. So please enjoy. Jarrett, welcome to the show. What I'd love to do is jump right into what we were talking about a couple minutes ago before we went live, which is this notion of preparedness and what it means to you in your role and, of course, what it means to your average citizen as well as all the companies out there that are navigating their way through uh, this COVID situation that we find ourselves in. Absolutely. So preparedness with COVID is ironically, or maybe not ironically, it's kind of like everything else. The 80% of preparedness is not event specific. What I tell people to get ready for when there's an earth before an earthquake, or if there might be a wildfire, or if there might be a hurricane, 80% of it's the same. Being prepared to be your own first responder for as much as two weeks, in this case, a month. Having the materials you might need at home, food, water, uh, medic- medical, you know, medications that you might need, uh, your eyeglasses if you need them, gas in your tank, or if you have an electric car, access to electricity. All of those things are critical. We, you know, it's a little bit different with earthquakes in terms of some of the equipment we want you to have on hand. You need to be prepared for an electrical outage, perhaps lack of gas, but the but a lot of the materials to sort of go on. Uh, where you're on your own, where you're not going to be able to go to the grocery store, where you're not going to be able to kind of get on with the the normal aspects of life are the same. We've been telling people that as we saw this uh, begin to spread uh, from Wuhan across China into South Korea, Japan, on the cruise ships, Italy, and uh, there have, you know, the the message is still the same. We are now, as we tape this, uh, we're now at orange level, uh, by which, and what that means is uh, we sort of went from green to yellow uh, about a week and a half ago when there were the first 
community cases reported here in Los Angeles with recommendations of social distancing. At the orange level, we begin to recommend that people who have high risk, uh, people who are over six, 65 and over, people have uh, uh, compromised immune systems, uh, perhaps people who have been lifelong smokers, uh, people uh, who have respiratory ailments, that these folks self, uh, self-quarantine, uh, shelter in place, essentially. We've uh, recently heard that in Northern California, they've gone to red. Red, what that looks like is, and that's sort of our highest level uh, of preparedness that our governor, our county's public health are recommending. Those are uh, when the entire community is being told to shelter in place. I want to make a couple of notes because there are some people who are not, even at the red level, uh, uh, recommended to shelter in place. Obviously, our first responders, health and medical personnel uh, need to be able to do that. But also regular people who are on their way, for example, to make a blood donation. Uh, With the the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen a decline of 30 to almost 40 percent in people making blood donations. So it's actually mission critical, you know, at a sort of a societal level that people get out and make blood donations. And that is also uh, an extenuating circumstance that people could and hopefully will follow and go out and give blood. The same, uh, obviously, if you have to rush somebody to the emergency room, getting in that car and driving them is an exception. So it doesn't mean everybody will have to quarantine. It means that everybody except for uh, necessary uh, mission critical things, whether it's in your professional capacity or in a personal capacity. Now, in that environment, what's the Red Cross doing? We have uh, quite a few things. Obviously, people know the Red Cross for blood and blood collection. We collect uh, getting on close to half the nation's blood supply. That's a lot. And here in uh, Southern California, we are by far the largest collector of blood. And we are very much right now involved in doing that while at the same time protecting the safety of our workforce. And there's a lot. So we're following social distancing guidelines. People are wearing masks. Um, surfaces are being cleaned. Obviously, you always have clean needles and the sorts of things which the FDA regulates already to make blood. Uh, the donation of blood is a safe process. Uh, it's just sort of being extra guarded in that respect. So huh. critical mission number one. Um, I'm sorry, Bob, did you have a, you had a question? You go ahead, Jared, please continue. Right. Second mission critical uh, area is we continue to respond to the daily disasters that happen. Uh, house fires, if there were uh, a large wildfire or earthquake, thank God that hasn't happened in L.A. But just yesterday, we were on alert for mudslides uh, with all the rainstorms. Were there a mudslide? Were there to be families displaced? There were four fires yesterday, four house fires where people were left displaced. We respond to those. We respond to those using all the criteria, right? People keeping it a six foot distance, again, no direct contact as much as possible. The follow-up casework that we do, doing it over the phone, Uh, the financial assistance we're providing, we are FedExing the, the, the debit card. It's called a TAC card uh, to the families. If in the meantime, they need a hotel or some other shelter, we provide that, and we put that on our credit card, uh, and we make sure people get what they need. So the, the mission of the Red Cross is still happening, even though we are amidst uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
We are doing something very special also that we've never done before, that we've not done because we've never encountered these circumstances. Many people are aware that we've had a rash of school closures in Los Angeles, uh, in the whole county. And in fact, in the state of California, most schools are now closed. One of the things that people don't necessarily realize uh, in a school district like the Los Angeles Unified School District, LAUSD, or LA Unified, 80% of the kids, that's about 520,000 children, 80% of the students are on free and reduced lunch. They get two, sometimes three meals a day. So the closure of the schools actually is at a time when many low-income families are being laid off because they can't go to work. They're hourly workers or uh, they're in the informal labor sector. They're not earning any money. Is putting these children and their families uh, at risk of hunger. The Los Angeles Unified School District invited the Red Cross to partner with them so that we can continue to provide meals. In a COVID-19 in, uh, sort of safe environment, we are doing this and following all the regulations, we're doing what we call grab-and-go meals, where we provide uh, meals. People come by in their car, they walk up, uh, we kind of go up to the table, provide it. We're also providing COVID-19 safety information. A lot of the families who are coming, their first language is in English, or uh, they just haven't got the news, the information they need to stay safe. So in addition to providing people with information, we're having quick conversations with folks about how they can keep their families safe in a time of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've never done something like this before because, frankly, we've never been in a situation but it's, uh, it's front and center, and we are asking the public to support us. Uh, if folks want to volunteer, they can go to the redcross.org website and sign up. We've already signed up hundreds of community members. We have an online portal that people can sign up. We do a quick background check and a quick training for folks who want to sign up for a shift. Given that they're expecting schools to be closed for the next four weeks into mid to maybe late April, uh, we're going to be doing this for a while. And if Angelinos find themselves local people here in Los Angeles find themselves interested and able to give a bit of time. And if they're not in one of those high-risk groups, and they can give us a four-hour slot of time from 6.30 to 10.30 in the morning, we'd really love their help. Uh, people can just go. If you uh, are CEO of a company and you'd like your company to do this, we have a lot of companies stepping up, not with their entire workforce, but with workforce, members of the workforce who feel safe, who feel comfortable giving their own risk, and who they might have at home, right? If people have an elderly parent at home, they may not want to do this. But for those who do, their service is critical to making sure these kids are going to get the meals they, they need. So that's what the Red Cross has been doing. As the CEO of the Red Cross, I have to say it's, it's challenging. It's challenging at a lot of levels, right? You're building the bridge as you walk across it with a new mission, while at the same time really conscious that in a way that's different from other sorts of responses, you have to have hyper-consciousness around the safety of your own workforce as you lean in to this operation. And uh, the data is changing every day. We're learning about the virus. We're hearing about new safety protocols. And so being flexible, uh, fluid in our response, always being uh, kind of rigorous in that, making sure that we're taking care of our clients and our workforce is absolutely critical. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting time. The mm -hmm. other thing that I think has been interesting as a sort of a leader of an organization. We have about 
uh, all of our team all in. We have about 150 paid staff, and we have about 8,000 volunteers in the Los Angeles Red Cross. Much of our work uh, uh, was done before COVID-19, was done at meetings. We have about eight offices around the county. We get together. We have all these meetings. We have you know, youth clubs, about 150 youth clubs around the county. Uh, they meet. All of this changed uh, with COVID-19. And in, in the uh, lead up to this, when we began to see what was going on in China and medical experts were suggesting it was likely uh, to cross the Pacific and hit us here in California, we began to kind of build some muscle memory around going virtual. We did a couple of virtual days in the office where literally we, we kind of closed the doors to the office. We made people work from home, forcing people, particularly some of those late adopters, right? The early adopters is never an issue. The late adopters of the Teams technology, which is the platform that we use, although some of us like to use Zoom, uh, the Teams technology. We uh, also kind of forced all meetings that had more than eight people, uh, not just that day, but going forward until we were through it, forced them all onto the Teams platform so that we could get ourselves into the habit uh, of, of working virtually so that we didn't have to kind of uh, shut things down and then figure things out after the fact without the ability to, to call IT and get some coaching. We still did that when we were in blue sky before gray sky. And that's mm -hmm. helped us a lot as we've gone from green to yellow to now orange, where we are not supposed to be working uh, in our office, where we're all really supposed to be as much as possible at home and certainly not having meetings with large numbers of folks uh, or events that convene lots of our volunteers in the same place. So it's interesting uh, kind of anticipating and getting my leadership team on board to take this seriously and then to get them to take it seriously enough to make time in a busy day to do the preparatory things they would need to stay effective in this orange environment that we're currently in. It's been challenging, both as the manager and as mm -hmm. sort of the leader, specifically the Red Cross Club. Thanks for that, Jared. Yeah, it um, you know, brings up a lot of thoughts. You have 5,000 volunteers. How many of them at the moment are not comfortable or not able to volunteer anymore? And what does that shortage look like in terms of the on-the-ground efforts? Absolutely. So we have a, we always have a need for people to volunteer uh, with blood centers and they can do that on redcross.org as well. But, but we have sort of an urgent appeal to the people of Los Angeles. If you're able to come now, even those who come, I want to be clear, we're not putting people in harm's way. People are wearing gloves. People are keeping their social distance. Uh, we are taking a lot of precautions uh, around food. If people have been sick or any other thing, we don't want folks uh, to come out and volunteer. But if you are able to, um, we are asking, we have a sort of an event-based volunteer portal so that you can just sign up and do it. We need hundreds of volunteers. It's uh, Every day, we need about 300 people to staff about 60 different food distribution sites across greater Los Angeles. And uh, not everybody can do it every day, so it's not going to be the same 300 people. Uh, we're asking folks if you can give us one day or two days a week, one four-hour shift a week or two four-hour shifts a week, you can go to redcross.org 
uh, slash Los Angeles, and you'll see the portal. And you can just uh, look to volunteer and, and focus on the COVID-19 uh, uh, Los Angeles Unified Response. Yeah, and, and there's a, you sign up, then you'll have the availability to sign up for a shift. Uh, pick a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday. It's five days a week, four-hour shifts. We would really appreciate that. What does containment look like for political leaders and leaders of organizations like yours? And as a follow-on, it seems to me that Los Angeles and New York City are probably the leading indicators of signals. I don't have a crystal ball, but so I can't give you times. But what I can tell you, I, I think we can talk about, uh, particularly based on what we're seeing in China, the metrics is that there, maybe, there, right? there, yeah. yeah, there absolutely is sort of this curve, right? But I want to caution people. Because the one of the assumptions of that curve is that people don't reinfect. If people reinfect, and there is some evidence that some people do uh, in China, if people reinfect, it's a totally different timeline. And uh, but but assuming for the minute that that's that's not the case, I think that you're you know there's there's a period where uh, our system is going to be taxed. Hopefully, we're able to sort of depress the bell curve. And extend it. You know, there's been a lot of conversations about how steep is the curve. If it's too steep right away, it's going to overwhelm our healthcare delivery system. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see that right now. And this is, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but what's going on in Italy, uh, northern Italy in particular, is tragic. It's, it's a little, it was too little too late. And they got caught flat footed, at least in northern Italy. Uh, the restrictions that we are trying to make now uh, at by asking vulnerable populations to self-isolate are really intended to slow the distribution. It's not a, a, a full containment, uh, but it's going to slow it. So our system isn't overwhelmed because we do think there's a, there's a, there's a certain percentage that's already affected, but that's sort of a the, the geometric progression up the curve is what we are trying to avoid. And if we mm -hmm. can, if we can do that, our healthcare system won't be overwhelmed and, and that means we will be able to deliver better care uh, to people and more lives will be saved. So respecting mm -hmm. the orders uh, that we're getting from our county public health department, Dr. Barbara Ferrer here in Los Angeles County, who's got to be the sanest, most calming voice uh, in this, uh, listening to our governor and his health leadership. Uh, and, uh, and you know what a lot of governors are doing around the country, uh, people uh, I think, and we really see the states have led on this, really giving good information, science-based directives around what to do, and people are listening. Uh, at least that's what I'm seeing in California, that people are listening, they're taking their cues, and my best evidence for that is there was no traffic on the 101 yesterday, and that means people are staying home. Mm -hmm. What is it that Barbara is saying that is making officials and other people sort of feeling at ease or at least having some clarity on the process? I think I wouldn't use at ease. I don't think any of us are at ease right now. And I think it's important, Bob, that we acknowledge that it's okay. We shouldn't feel at ease. There's too much we don't know. But, but let's take that feeling and channel it, channel those energies into direct action that will make the people we care about, our families, our employees, make them safer, giving people clear directions. Because for as many people as you have that are maybe hypochondriacs and, you know, they've been 
going to the grocery for, store for the last three weeks and are ready. You have as many people that waited to the last second and still didn't know. And they were at the bar last night, focusing on some of our team members and really having serious conversations with them to heed these warnings. What Barbara is doing, Dr. Ferrer is doing, is giving us the data that we need to make intelligent, evidence-based decisions at a time where uh, where uncertainty, unfortunately, is reigning. Now, uncertainty is natural, right? A lot of it's because we don't know much about uh, the disease. A lot of it is that we're getting a lot of conflicting information from maybe higher levels of government. But, but, but we are, you know, historically, it's your local public health team mm-hmm. that knows the most about what's going on. And that's who you really should be relying on. And that's uh, why we've been very well served here in L.A. with Dr. Ferrer and, and her team. They have been clear, giving their daily updates. They're transparent, too. They're, they're not trying to hide the number of cases that are out there or the seriousness that we're now up to you know, getting on close to a dozen community transmissions. That's important to know because that triggers certain protocols, but that we're not going to necessarily uh, act out of fear and, and go to a higher level of uh, pro- a higher pr- level protocol before we need to uh, if the data doesn't justify it. That that gives, if not comfort, that at least gives us the kind of solid direction we need, the guidelines that we can build our uh, response process around. We at the Red Cross, but also that the private industry can rely on uh, to build their uh, continuity of operations plans and make sure employees are safe when they, when they need to go home and, and when they can come back, to your earlier question. We'll know then when they can come back as well. Thank you for that, Jared. Um, you ran the Red Cross in Massachusetts during the Boston Marathon bombing. What are some of the, maybe not the parallels, but what are some of the emotive states that people had then compared to what we're seeing right now? That's a very keen question because the Boston Marathon, uh, which was obviously a terrorist attack, very different than COVID-19, but in a very particular way is a powerful analogy in terms of how people respond. Very different, for example, than say a hurricane where people have, you know, five days notice, it's coming. Even if people lose their homes, there's a, there's a sort of a familiarity with what that is. And once it's gone, it's gone. With COVID-19, it's like the Boston Marathon. As I go back to that, I was actually running the marathon that day. I was six blocks from the finish Mm. line when the bombs went off. And there was just genuine fear. The fear was different, but it was fear of the unknown. We didn't know before, uh, in the the first 48 hours, we didn't know who did it. We didn't know if there were going to be more bombs. We, like many people after 9-11, we were living in a state of uncertainty and fear. And that is deeply unsettling. And that also that impacts how a lot of us behave in those moments. It leads to a, a lot of irrational behavior um, and not necessarily uh, uh, the unsettlement that it leaves you with uh, really, really uh, requires a lot of attention and care from uh, first responders, from health providers, mental health providers, from groups like the Red Cross. Similarly with COVID-19, 
and and exhibit A is the discussion we just had. There's so much we don't know about it, and there's so much fear when we look at what's going on in Italy that that a deep level of uncertainty can take hold in the psyche uh, that, that leaves you sort of rattled, right, unsettled. And as we said earlier, as I would rec- as recommended, is channel that uncertainty into the things that you can control. What can you can control? You can control what you, your family, what your workforce is doing, that they are taking care to do what they need to do to stay safe, to stay healthy in this time of crisis. And that might mean that will have an economic impact in some cases, right? Staying home. But your health, uh, your safety, your future uh, could very much rely on it. We're uncertain of how, in many cases, how broad uh, the virus has spread in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't had a really good system at the federal level of uh, identifying and distributing tests that we need. Hopefully, uh, that's going to get better soon, and we'll have a lot more sort of community surveillance. We'll, we'll know more about what's going on at the community level, which we will then allow us to maybe tailor our response even better. Uh, but that underlying certainty, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's very similar. In my experience, it was similar to what I saw uh, in the public in Boston after those bombings. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I look at your business and, you know, you're in the business as an executive there of sort of managing one crisis after three and a half billion nationally, three and a half billion. the LA region is, you know, we're, we're sort of a, a, a very small part of the, what is a nationwide network of red crosses. And we're very proud of the work we do. I don't, you know, in terms of crisis management, I don't know that I have anything to say to the president of Microsoft, but what I would say to what I would say to everybody, particularly those leaders and organizations uh, who sort of are in charge of keeping the trains running on time, the operations team, the logistics leads, those mm-hmm. folks is make sure that you've got a continuity of operations plan. And what I would say to the leaders, to the CEO, to the C-suite, is make sure that you understand that as much as there is an economic component to something like COVID-19, there is an emotional, there's a values component that you need to make sure your employees see in you, in every communication you make, uh, because this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, and you can, I, th- I think it can make or break employee morale and belief mm-hmm. in their leaders, how you respond to something like this. What are some of the tactics that, that you have employed with, with your own teams, you know, in terms of proper leadership and guidance and keeping them aligned, you know, in this, uh, this type of situation or even with, with the Boston Marathon bombing? Well, you know, what, what's interesting is, and this is, I think, part of how the brain works when it's in that space of uncertainty or of crisis, is clear communication cannot be, I can't say that enough, clear communication is critical. Saying things, saying them again, saying them a third time, and if you, say, if you think three times enough, then say it one more time just to be sure, that people understand directives, having a clear line uh, of authority because things are different in gray skies than in blue skies, right? You might need to be listening to different leaders within an organization when uh, you guys are going virtual, right? The IT people all of a sudden mm-hmm. have a lot more importance. The operations people all of a sudden have a new uh, sort of bully pulpit and need and deserve that respect and making sure you as the leaders are, are making that clear so that they're empowered to deliver their message so that they can help the organization. Clear communication at all levels Mm-hmm. Very important. I think also, secondly, 
hearkening back to values, linking what you're doing to your organizational values. The fact what you're doing is to is because you're concerned for the health and well-being of your employees. That links to pretty much every corporation's uh, values, and there's 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 a way to do that clearly, uh, and make the point along the way so that people aren't left with oh we're just doing this because we don't want to get sued because the lawyers and general counsel said you know you better close up. I think it's very important before, during, and after that you're working to communicate your actions and connecting them to values. Those mm-hmm. are the top two, top two points I'd offer. Yeah. How can a nonprofit or any small business or large corporation sort of think about responding properly to this type of setback, whether it be a Boston Marathon bombing or, or fire or flood, you know, obviously a COVID-19, you know, what are some of the best practices that can be employed? And is this more process versus people or perhaps a little of both? I think it's, I think it's a little of both. The word we like to use in the kind of disaster space, if, if I can be so presumptuous, <laughs> to create a category right. for this type of word. So hopefully we don't have too much of it, um, is resilience. And that term in health means something else. And it means something else probably in a, uh, a kind of a blue sky business setting. But the, but the point, the fundamental point, and whether this is a person, a family, a community, or a business, I think the concept applies in the same way. Resilience is the ability to bounce back after a setback and kind of get back, back going again with all pistons ablazing, mm-hmm. back to normal operations. Get yourself back to blue sky operations after the fact. Could be a hurricane. It could be a wildfire. It could be maybe a, a a particular operation in one of your facilities that you know goes bad. A terrorist attack. Who knows? Or it could be this virus. One of the keys to resilience is having a strong internal uh, plan. Right? We call it continuity of operations plan. And all the key players who need to be there uh, are ready to to implement when you go gray skies. But I think another piece of it. Uh, gets back to this idea of communication, that acknowledging that your trust and, 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 and that your employees believe in their resilience and in your resilience. This is one of the things, one of the reasons that, um, I mean, we've already talked about the work that Red Cross does with blood and with disaster, but a big part of what we do in our humanitarian services mission isn't disaster response, but actually disaster preparedness. And the source of work we try to do, and we really focus on our most vulnerable populations because they're the least likely to bounce back. Um, older folks, uh, immigrants, low-income populations, folks who are less likely to have the information they need, uh, we focus on them deliberately because of their greater risk uh, in times of mm-hmm. disaster. But for everybody, really making sure people uh, have done what they need to do. Now, I can get very... Um, tactical talking about disaster, you know, what needs to be in your earthquake kit, what you should do if there's a wildfire. I don't think that's really your question. I think you're more asking broadly what companies, individuals need to do. And generally speaking, it's you know, sort of understand your risks and prepare for them. Uh, we have a tool at Red Cross. It's actually a free tool uh, that we share with all businesses called ReadyRating, readyRating.com, or maybe it's readyRating.org. 
Not sure about that. Um, try them both. R-E-A-D-Y-R-A-T-I-N-G. It's a, it's a very easy tool. It's a 120-question test um, uh, that we give companies, and they can assess how ready they are for a disaster. It's, it's both about the tactical needs uh, of whatever plan they have and getting that plan in place, but more importantly, it's more of a, an environmental scan so that the C-suite of a company can assess their readiness and maybe redirect resources if necessary to support resilience building for in your company. Uh, it's kind mm -hmm. of a wake-up call for a lot of companies. How do you prepare yourself you know, as a leader and a CEO for these types of situations when you have to talk with external constituencies, when you're talking with your internal folks, how do you kind of put yourself into a mindset that, that okay, you know, there's, this is an unusual situation for sure, whether it's a COVID or a marathon, you know, marathon bombing or a flood or fire, how do you put yourself in a headset where you're calm and you're able to convey that? <laughs> well, I, you know, at some level, Bob, I think that um, people who can't keep calm don't do well in my line of work. You don't, you don't uh, choose disaster response as a, as a field or a profession if you freak out at the, every time the ground shakes. So, uh, so some of this might be self-selection. I don't want to overplay that. But what we've experienced, I think, comes the ability to focus, you know, you're, you don't go immediately to your lizard brain, right? When something, mm. uh, something difficult or unfamiliar happens, uh, you, you let reason, uh, prevail. And you also surround yourself with other team members, many of whom are as or more experienced as you are. Uh, interestingly, when we go to a disaster response at the Red Cross, our TO flips. I'm no longer the CEO of the LA Red Cross, the, the leader of the disaster response. It's, um, we have a table of organization that follows sort of what fire departments and FEMA do. Uh, and we incident, it's called incident command. Mm -hmm. And the job director is the boss. I report in uh, doing a number of the external relations type functions, uh, but I have a boss and that boss is typically somebody who has served in dozens, if not hundreds of disaster responses, that level of experience and the calm the, the calmness, the deliberateness with, which comes with it is very important to leading through uh, challenging times. What's the profile of that person? That person, typically they've got a few years on me. And typically, as I said, they've, they've been, and, and, and the way they talk about it is, oh, I've been in 40 different states with 90 different disasters. Mm -hmm. but, but, it's a, but it's sort of, while maybe long in the tooth, there's a sort of a, um, an experience it comes with that, uh, that typically uh, lends confidence uh, or prov uh, sort of instills confidence in the team around them. Now, you've got to be careful, right? I'll give you one example. Uh, back in uh, about two, two and a half years ago when we had all the hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey followed by Hurricane Irma, then Hurricane Maria, we, um, a, couple of, a couple of people, me and the, uh, the woman who runs the Chicago Red Cross, Selena Roldan, uh, who's a, a dear colleague of mine, we began to work with our national organization because the way we had done things sort of for a long time, we pointed out to them that as our demographic profile in the United States had changed 
and many of our cities had become very, very populated with immigrants, we weren't seeing those immigrant populations coming to our shelters. And that that was sort of a call to action for doing things a little bit differently. One of the risks I think any organization runs in having people with a lot of experience is maybe less of a willingness to try new things. And fortunately, and, but fortunately for the Red Cross, um, it's a very transparent organization. It's a very flat organization in that respect. Despite the fact that we follow incident command, we were able to sort of bring new ideas that were then adopted. And we've, I think now as an organization, do a much better job in serving immigrant populations who in many cities are the majority of the yeah. community. How much of your work is reactionary versus proactive? And I go back to this notion of preparedness. And I guess there are just, you know, there are certain things that will arise, like a, like a COVID or a fire or what have you, that obviously are going to be reactionary. But, but you know, how do you sort of look at the balance of that, if it even is a balance? Or maybe it's just a matter of, like, your teams are ready to go for anything at any moment in time, I suppose. Absolutely. Great question. The, the, the first thing I would say is, I would say 80% of the time we're in blue sky, not in gray sky, maybe 90% of the time. And what that means is we're doing the preparedness work. We're doing all of our proactive work, the stuff that we plan for at the beginning of the year that we set our goals around. We can't plan for in LA, the earthquake or the wildfire. We know they're going to happen so we can plan to be ready when they do happen, but we don't know when they're going to happen. Now, there's another part to that answer, because even in blue skies, even where we are focusing on our regular blue sky goals, and we have a lot of them, we do services to armed forces, we have international service programs, we do a lot of work uh, training people to get ready for earthquakes, teaching CPR, range of things, giving blood. Even while we're doing all those blue sky activities, we're still very focused on everyday disasters. It may not rise to the level of having the whole organization go gray sky, but which still happen and which we, ha we need to have teams ready for. Mm -hmm. So uh, you would have, for example, about three weeks ago, we had within a, the, within a stretch of two weeks, we had three different apartment buildings burned down in LA. Each one had more than 20 families lose their homes. For those families, it was gray skies. For Red Cross as a region, we were still in blue sky, but for the territory of our region that was responding to that, they were responding pretty much 25 days straight. Uh, they were in gray skies. And so having the ability to kind of segment and have teams flip the switch from blue to gray is a very, very important kind of functionality, uh, that sort of flexibility that you need, uh, or the nimbleness uh, to change and, and, and still have the bulk of your organization achieving blue sky goals because you've got a bottom line. We have bottom lines we need to hit, right? We have, we set goals and we tell the community, we tell our funders, you know, the Red Cross doesn't take money from the government. We have to raise money from corporations and individuals and foundations. And, and we tell them what we're going to do. And gosh darn it, we have to come through on that. So we have to make sure that when we say we're going to install this many alarms, in uh, free smoke alarms in homes, and we're going to educate this many people about earthquakes, we have to get that done, even though we know a portion of our time. Uh, so I was, I'm a uh, recovering politician. Uh, and, <laughs> and you know that because uh, your family knows that, Bob. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I'm a recovering politician. And I was, while in politics, I was a state senator for many years. 
I was the chair of the Public Safety and Homeland Security Committee. I, I had uh, I'd lobbied to be the Health Care Committee chair, lobbied our Senate president back in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I got Public Safety and Homeland Security, and lo and behold, I found myself on a daily basis working with first responders, working with emergency, resp- emergency response organizations like the Red Cross. I actually became a member of the board of the Massachusetts Bay Red Cross uh, for many years. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was sort of how I found myself uh, moving in this direction. Leadership, uh, the, the leadership skills I'd learned earlier in my life were, uh, were welcomed. They were embraced at the Red Cross. Uh, but the content certainly was, a lot of it was new for me. I'm uh, sort of smart enough to know that I'm dumb uh, in a lot of ways, or at least ignorant. And um, I have uh, made it a bit of a cottage industry, listening and learning in my nine years at the Red Cross. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been a great mm-hmm. journey, one where I've had a lot of patient teachers here uh, along the way. Well, that's humble of you, but, it's, but uh, you've had a heck of a career uh, thus far, and you're still a young man. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> let me ask you, you mentioned about sort of learning, you know, and listening, right? And that's very important. And that's a common theme, I think, with executives and CEOs. What are some of the resources that you read? Uh, maybe it's a daily newspaper or, or it's a blog or some books that have had an influence on your life. What are some of the resources out there? You know, what are the tabs open on your browser? You know, what, uh, where, where are you getting your content from? I get my content. I, uh, so I get, I'll be really honest because I, because it's LA and I'm in my car a lot. A lot of my content is podcasts like yours. Mm. Uh, and so I'll, uh, I'll share with you some of my, my top podcasts in terms of, but, but in terms of news, I read the, the New York times and the LA times daily. Uh, I also, uh, on my Mozilla, um, uh, browser, there's something called Pocket, and they suggest, uh, and I've sort of tailored uh, to sort of curate the, the, the news that I get uh, in Pocket uh, for a lot of interesting stories that I wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, on the web, on the internet, or on the, the podcasts, I, uh, uh, the Daily and the Washington Post uh, news is something I listen to, the New, York, uh, the New Yorker's Radio Hour and Radio Lab. Uh, and then some very specific nerdy ones, one called Deep Background, uh, the, the Guardian uh, Long Reads podcast, uh, and um, uh, something called back, uh, one called Backstory, and gosh, I've got a, a whole bunch of others. But those are probably the most reliable for news that I get. News and history that um, history shows that take the, the current headlines and then put them in historical context and really provide uh, useful background on what's going on in the news. So those are uh, some of the phase through line from NPR is another one. And then um, something called uh, in our time, which is done by the BBC are uh, very popular ones uh, in my world. Excellent. Those sound like great resources and we will uh, be sure to share those links with uh, the listeners as well in the show notes. Is there Anything else you'd like listeners to know as it relates to preparedness generally, whether you're at a corporation or within the moment here, obviously, with COVID? And where can people find you online? Uh, I am at Jarrett Barrios uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. And I am at the Red Cross. My email is at our website. It's Jarrett 
Barrios at redcross.org. It's spelled J-A-R-R-E-T-T, last name B-A-R-R-I-O-S. Since I said in communication you have to say it a few times, I'll do that one more time. J-A-R-R-E-T-T, B-A-R-R-I-O-S, at Jarrett Barrios if you want to tag me on Twitter. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you joining, Jarrett, and um, best of luck within the midst of this, uh, th- this unusual situation with the coronavirus, to say the least. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time.